Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, it's Jeremy, and today on Politico Dispatch, we're going to be presenting episode three of Playbook Deep Dive, our new weekly politics show here at Politico. If you like what you hear, just remember to search for Playbook Deep Dive wherever you're listening and press subscribe. We'll be back on Monday with new episodes of Politico Dispatch. All right, here's the show. Enjoy. The black world knew Alice Dunnigan back then, knew her very well. White, white people, white people didn't know what was going on in the black world. We're in the 1950s. Eisenhower is president. I'm not born yet. Alice Dunnigan is a White House reporter sitting in the briefing room. Announcements, we'll go directly to questions. President, President. The first and only black woman sitting in the briefing room back then. So she raised the question at a news conference. And Eisenhower got very mad. He had a little fit of pique, and he said, Well, I don't think much of the question. Why are you asking me that? Shut down, ignored. Each time, he would say, Why are you asking me? I know that feeling well. <laughs> Thank you. That's all. I'm Eugene Daniels, an author of Politico's Playbook, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Hi, I'm Carol Booker. Carol is a former journalist and attorney who rediscovered an autobiography Alice wrote back in 1974 that was almost out of print. There were a couple of copies offered online. But for $100 or more, I wasn't about to pay $100. So I lived near the Library of Congress, and I walked over there. I was amazed. And she was so interested in it that she thought to herself, this has got to get out to the people now. What a fantastic book this was. Carol published a revised version in 2015. The book is a hit. So Carol is the perfect person. I'd love to talk about Alice. To answer this question. See, that's the question. Who was Alice Dunnigan? Who was she? So few people know who Alice Dunnigan was. And it's too bad because she did so much for the early civil rights movement. She was a trailblazer and a pioneer. She was, for example, the first black woman to be accredited to the House and Senate press galleries. This is in 1948. And then the first black woman accredited to the White House press corps. She led the way for many women today in journalism who recognize that they stand on the shoulders of Alice Dunnigan. Alice reported for the Associated Negro Press. So at the news conferences, she would raise questions about things going on in the federal government. And during the Eisenhower administration, something very obvious was happening to her in the briefing room with the president. Each time he would say, why are you asking me? As if he had no responsibility for the executive branch. She's asking Eisenhower questions and she was getting nowhere. And he was intimidating, chewing her out for raising the question. And then... All of a sudden, he stopped calling on her entirely. The longest President Eisenhower went without answering her was, get this, you guys, two and a half years. Imagine that you, you go to your job and the one person you're supposed to interview won't talk to you. If she didn't get what she wanted from you, which was usually an answer to a question, on Monday, 
because she'd be back again on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday until she got it. Alice was persistent. She would want to be remembered, I believe, for struggling and being persistent. Other people in the room took notice. Well, the press started writing about this. And Alice was interviewed on radio and in magazines. Jet magazine. About Eisenhower ignoring her. How he just simply refused to call on this black female reporter. Fast forward to John F. Kennedy's presidency. The year is now 1961. I'm still not born yet. And he holds his first news conference in January of 1961. Good afternoon. Proceed. Eight minutes into that news conference, he recognizes Alice Dunnigan. Yes, ma'am. The first woman reporter and the first black reporter that he recognizes. And you hear this lovely Kentucky lilt female voice says, what are you going to do about the black farmers in Tennessee who dared to vote in the last election and have been evicted from their homes and are living in Tennessee? And President Kennedy shoots right back with in Congress, of course. Uh, we are going to take care of this problem. Legislation which placed very clear responsibility on the executive branch. We are branch going to take action and protect the right of voting. His last word is that signature where he says, "We are going to tackle this with vigor." Providing that protection uh, with all vigor. That's a wonderful yes. moment for Alice. It's been more than sixty years since Alice Dunnigan got her question answered. Reporters like me who have access to the highest seat in the country, we're a small group. An even smaller group within that group are reporters of color. So what's changed since Alice's experience six decades ago? And honestly, what hasn't? When Carol watched briefings when Trump was president, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Remember that? She had a sort of deja vu. I'm a news junkie, and I would watch the way he treated women reporters, black reporters. So I, I, you know, I saw the way he treated April Ryan. I saw the way he treated others where he would, in effect, say, why are you asking a stupid question like that? And try to intimidate them. This is the most powerful human on earth berating someone that looks like me and has the same job as me. It's not easy. It's honestly just as shocking to watch as a black reporter. Today, I'm taking you inside the briefing room with me and two other Black White House reporters, April Ryan and Aisha Roscoe, to show you what it's like covering multiple presidents and what happens when reporters, especially reporters from minority groups, are cut off, attacked, or treated as outsiders. Don't be threatening. Be nice. You might have seen this on TV or Twitter. Same thing with April Ryan. I watch her get up. I mean, you talk about somebody that's a loser. She doesn't know what the hell she's doing. But April put up with a lot of guff from the president, so she did well. And you might be wondering, why does getting my job done matter to you? Well, for one, because White House reporters are your eyes and ears inside the White House. Often your only source to know what's really going on. And getting questions answered has real ripple effects on policies and life outside the D.C. bubble. Sit down. 
I didn't call you. I didn't call you. You ought to be ashamed. You know what? You ought to be ashamed. You just ask your question in a very nasty tone. There's so much history when you go to the White House. So you feel, you know, you feel small in that way. Like, oh my God, presidents have been here. But, y'all, it is so small. <laughs> it, is, it does not look like what you see on Scandal, the House of Cards, or even Veep. Like, the building itself is small. The rooms are much smaller than you probably anticipate. And the press briefing room where you see us in is really small. <laughs> it's very small. The workspaces are small. And so... Um, the first time that you walk in, you're you're at once kind of scared that you're not supposed to be there or you're going to go the wrong place. But then also like, oh, huh, interesting. This is not at all <laughs> what Olivia Pope told me to expect. And so it's a lot different than that. The main difference between a Joe Biden presser and a, and a Donald Trump presser is first, we're back now to the normal way of things operated, right? There's an adversarial relationship, um, but, you know, the president's not calling you the enemy of the people. So it feels like already it feels a little bit different. Um, and there's some back and forth. You know, Biden hasn't done as many pressers as anyone would like him to. He's done one main one. And in that one, you know, he tussled back and forth with reporters, but none of it felt personal. And I think that was the difference between the Donald Trump presidency and kind of what we've seen in the first 100 days plus of the Joe Biden presidency so far. One person tweeted, and I, I thought this was so funny. He said he thought I sounded like a rapper. <laughs> Aisha Roscoe covers the White House for NPR and is part of the NPR Politics podcast. Covering the White House, from Bill Clinton to now, race touches everything. April Ryan is a White House correspondent for The Griot, an online publication aimed at a Black audience. April, you've been doing this for a long time. There are a lot of moments that stick out to me from your career, but I think that there are a lot of people who remember President Trump asking if members of the Congressional Black Caucus were friends of yours. Oh, oh God. Am I gonna Are you going to include the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Well, Hispanic I would. Caucus, I tell you what. Do you want to well set up the, the meeting? Do you want to set up the meeting? No, no, no. I, Are they I, friends I, I, of I'm yours? I'm just a reporter. No, I, set up the meeting. But I also think about when you asked Trump if he was racist. I remember watching that on TV and I, <laughs> I really couldn't believe it was happening. Mr. President, will you give an apology for the statement yesterday? Mr. President, did you refer to African nations? Mr. President, are you a racist? It was striking, I think, for probably every single person who was watching that, um, who maybe have been wondering the same thing because of some of his actions. And so his curious, words. Like, and his words. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, how you, because for people who don't know, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the questions we're going to ask the press secretary, the president, all of his people. So, like, what was that process to you getting that question? And what was the response after? How do you feel after as you said, there were a lot of things coming, bubbling up, you know, a-hole nations, confederacy yeah. and all that stuff, you know, with um, General Kelly, the well, slavery and confederacy. Yeah. And then the thing with Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, with Frederica Wilson, how they were saying she was eavesdropping when the master sergeant put the phone on speaker for everyone to hear. Yeah. And I mean, just how they talked about her, talked about black people going in on Maxine Waters. I mean, it's so many other things that had happened. Mm. And so I was doing pool duty that day. That day being Martin Luther King Jr. Day 2018, the day after Trump reportedly asked why the U.S. admits people from, quote, shithole countries. 
And it was so crazy. When I asked the question, Darrell Scott, the preacher from Cleveland, said, no, he's not resisting. So I'm talking to him. He said, well, I'm talking to you. One of this start a fight. Oh, I'm talking to the president. I'm talking to you. The Marine had to stand between us because he was getting, he had a bottle of water like he was going to throw the water on me. And I was mm. like, you, you, you better not get froggy. It got, <laughs> it got kind of heated. Yeah. And because I asked a question that was legitimate. And now mm. I have no questions about whether he's racist or not. Yes, he's mm. a racist. And I say that from, from being a reporter, observing him, I say that as a human being, and I say that as a black woman who's been the brunt of his racial and nasty attacks of me. Hmm. So is it my place to to call him a racist? Typically, I would not say that. Hmm. But that was such a, a, a different time. But at that time, I was giving him the benefit of the doubt to say whether he was or not. And he didn't answer. And he let that question linger for three days. And that was Martin Luther King. That was the day that he was celebrating Martin Luther King um, Jr. You talk about being upset. That's the moment when I cried. After I asked that hmm. question, I left the White House and just broke down in tears. And I was um, in tears. Um, I cried on the shoulder of a friend who's a cameraman at the White House, hmm. Dan Tutman. And it was so weighty. As a person of color, there's often moments in our jobs or even just, you know, everyday interactions where you have to think, okay, this wouldn't have happened if I was white. Or is this happening for you because this person sees me as a Black woman? As a White House correspondent, can you think of maybe one moment that stands out above all else? And I imagine it happened over the last four years, <laughs> over the last four years for you. Sean Spicer telling me as a grown woman, I think I'm older than he is, stop shaking your head. And then the president, then president telling me to sit down. I'm like, and I kept popping up because you're not going to tell me. And then a black woman to sit down. Nope. Mm. And so I stood up. Mm -hmm. I wasn't standing up just to be defiant. But that's a whole nother story. You're going to make me have to go to therapy because I'm reliving <laughs> that. So go back to therapy. Oh. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, you, you kind of laid out this other idea that reporting is also received differently. It is. When you it look is like now. you or I do. It is now. Especially in places like this. Right. Especially in these lofty perches like this. Yeah. I think I was the one who really got the brunt of it. Had, you know, death threats and, and had to move my own, had people following me, et cetera. Um, yeah. If I was a white man, it would be perceived differently. I hate to say it, but, you know, we're still in a nation where you got people who want to, to promote the Confederacy. And my hmm. great, great grandfather, Joseph Dollar Brown, was sold on the auction block in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Hmm. So I'm a descendant of a slave and I am the hope and dream as well as you are of the slaves. Yeah. So at the end of the day. They, I don't think they would have gone as far with the white male reporter as they did with me. But who knows? That's hypothetical. We don't know for sure. But I say this, because they felt I worked for a boutique organization, I was a black woman by myself. They thought they were going to make me run and hide. Mm -mm. Hmm. I was never going to give them that. Never. Never. You mentioned a lot there. And I think something, the thing that stuck out to me is that you had to move your home. Like, what? 
I moved my home because people were showing up at my house, making me feel unsafe. My kids would look out the window and see same cars. We moved. I had not planned on moving, but we moved. M-O-V-E-D, exclamation, exclamation. April, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that that's insane. It is. Right. So there you go. I mean, how do you, how do you... (laughs) How do you handle this and still do your job? Like I, you know, and I, was I can in imagine shock for it. months. I was yeah. in shock for months and and going on fumes and trying to protect my children most of all. But yeah. after that all happened, um, I'm in therapy now. Honestly, I'm in yeah. therapy because the residue of that hate still lingers, and it has been cathartic. But you know. It, people are demonic. They believe that I was the enemy. They believe that my questions were going to do something to them. Hmm. Girl, boy, bye. Yeah. So it was just a lot. Um, I've, yeah. I've had to deal with a lot, but you know, I'm still going to continue to do the job. Yeah. yeah. Well, something April that, that I'm always, always thinking about is how people that look like you and I built this building. Right. Ooh. And I remember the first time I went I like was shaking and I was so nervous because it was like for the briefing. And I take that with me every time. I I, I take the Keep fact it. that the people who created this country didn't want to see people that look like you and I in Keep there it. doing really anything. Not only did we build that building, they pushed us down in those little rooms at the time, mm-hmm. you know, to yeah. serve. Um, mm-hmm. But not only that, your humility, remembering that is important because you will keep the the perspective that you're supposed to keep. It's not about you. I think about the Emancipation Proclamation and what Lincoln did. And here I am walking through those gates, walking through that park, walking through those gates. And no one's stopping you. No one's arresting you. No one. Well, they try sometimes, but yeah, right. that's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke, y'all. We have a hard pass, our faces on it. Like, it's just like, you know, it's only been three months. And so... Keep that know, freshness and that outlook. Yeah. No, keep... Don't get used to it yeah. because once you get used to it, you may as well leave the job hmm. because you have to still be hungry to tell the story. I'll never forget when I first went to the White House, and this is the honest to God truth, because I wasn't part of that D.C. circuit. People were like, who is she? Who is she? Is she militant? Because I asked questions about an underserved community. They were very hypersensitive about my appearance. Just asking about issues they weren't asking about. Mm -hmm. You know? But they understood later on, oh, well, she's just covering stuff for her community or the people who listen. Why does it have to be like that? You know? Yeah, I feel you on that because my very first question that I asked was on reparations. And people were like... Exactly. Like, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Th- there you go. See, and then yeah, they and then yeah. they have to think about. Well, she asked that question. They have to dissect it to mm-hmm. be able to digest it. I don't need you to right. dissect or digest. It was a legitimate question. Do you think that? I mean, think from when you walked in on day one to now. I assume it was mostly white faces. And I'm curious about any anecdotes when you walked in. You like you walk in. You're like. You know, you're the you're maybe the only black woman, I'm guessing. Um, no. During the Clinton years, he was considered, mm-hmm. quote unquote, by who? Tony Morrison, the first black president. Yeah. So <laughs> because he had a um a heart for issues of the black community, everybody, everybody had a <laughs> lot of black 
reporters. That was the heyday, mm-hmm. you know, McClatchy, mm. um, Boston Globe, AP, a lot of people, Fox, Fox, um, you know, <laughs> a lot of people had black reporters. Yeah. And we were we were friendly. And then the numbers started dwindling down to what we have now during pretty much when when Bush came and then when Obama came. Oh, you saw everybody. Oh, I'm covering Obama. Oh, I'm covering Obama. (laughs) But I'm going to say this. When I came in, yeah, it was mostly white. It's always been mostly white male. But is that going to stop me from doing my job? Hmm. I have a right to be in any space that I choose to be in that I'm allowed Hmm. to be in. So that doesn't intimidate me. I am not I am not intimidated. And I'm going to say this to you, and I'm not trying to brag, but if the President of the United States and all his minions who send stuff after me and send me notes, if that didn't stop me from, from, from coming to work, do you think just being in a room with a bunch of people who don't look like me is going to intimidate me? Capital N, capital O, exclamation <laughs> point. So you've been in five different press rooms. First of all, what did it look like back when you started? You know, it changed. It was horrible. It was it was substandard living conditions or even reporting <laughs> conditions. And they changed it during the Bush years. Because um, it was so cramped? It was so, not it was just so cramped. cramped and... It was old and, and the crumbling. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we had, uh, 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 in the basement, we had a bathroom that would always be flooded when it rained. It still floods when it rains, but it's not <laughs> it as bad as it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, think about it. You're in a 200-year-old building. That part is not 200 years old, but it's old. Okay, so Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. I, I want you to describe each of those press rooms for us. So do me a favor and start with Clinton. Clinton. Um, the Clinton press room was led by Mike McCurry, the press secretary at the time. And he believed in a friendly adversary relationship. But it became a crazy clamor because that was not only the time of the president's race initiative. That was the second term. But it was also a time of Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Yeah, that was... I. I thought, I said, oh, there will never be anyone as newsy as Bill Clinton. And then here comes George W. Bush. (laughs) War and then Katrina. And then that room, again, he knew the issues that I would ask. He knew me intrinsically. He would always go to me, even if my name wasn't on there. When it came to Katrina, when it came to any issue that dealt with black America. He knew. These presidents, once you work with them long enough, they get to know you and kind of understand where you're going, the vein that you're going in. And when people weren't asking about certain issues, like, April, I know you got a question on Katrina. I'm like, you know that's right, sir. (laughs) Barack Obama, that newsroom, um, it was very hypersensitive because he was Mm. the first black man to be president. And remember how he said Trayvon could have been my son? People are like, well, what do you mean? Well, what the hell do you think he meant? That's <laughs> right, what I right. don't understand to this day. Why was everybody so upset? He's a black man. Trayvon is black. Meaning that if I had a son, it could, the same thing happen, could happen to him. Yeah. So the, the newsroom was very hypersensitive on race at that time. Mm-hmm. Then here you go with. The president, I will not mention. I will not mention his name. <laughs> and I have a reason not to mention his name because I... Yeah, been, tell people why. I've been the brunt of death threats because of his words. So I will not call his name. But that room was very different. Very... It was an angry room. Hmm. The press was really pit against each other almost. Mm-hmm. Because you had the conservatives who supported him. 
as he was calling us enemy of the people. It was it was factional. A lot of us, and, and this is the truth, and I know my colleagues may not like it, but they will nod their head and say yes. When we were in the basement, we had to watch what we said because we didn't know if somebody was going to write it or tell. You know, hmm. it's a free-flowing workspace. And you say something, it would be in their ear or it would be in a, a news report. So it hmm. was it was ugly. Um, now, I can't tell you about now because I'm not in there as much. And it's Right, because of COVID. No, no, none of, of us are really there right. as much. So, yeah. um, the press room right now is disjointed, but the news and the questioning still happens. And that's the best part of the democracy that is still yeah. going on safely. Thanks so much, April. Thank you. April Ryan has covered five presidencies. Aisha Roscoe covers the White House for NPR and is part of the NPR Politics podcast. Aisha, compared to April, you're fairly new at this. When did you become a White House correspondent? So I started back the last year of the Obama administration. So I think it was 2016. I never thought I could be a White House reporter. It Hmm. seemed like it was something that was so out of range for something that I would be able to do. I and so I just never thought it was even possible. And I did not aspire to it. Do you think that's I find that women, black people, brown people, black women especially, like I always hear that story, right? Like about like it's that's it's that kind of very similar I held myself back from, you know, you're talking about church, so from your own blessing, right? Like, <laughs> yes, like yes. you know what I, I mean? Being, my blessing. Yeah, blocked your blessing. <laughs> like, trying to be, just being so nervous, being, you know, being so nervous or, or maybe not seeing other people that look like you do that job, so it doesn't look like something you could do. So why would you aspire to it? Do you think that is kind of how you were thinking about it, even subconsciously? Maybe subconsciously not seeing someone who had taken my path, not not seeing people who necessarily look like me in that position and definitely feeling like not seeing someone who I felt like was like me, you know, Mm. and I don't know exactly what I mean. Obviously, yes, I'm a black woman. (laughs) I'm from the South. Mm -hmm. But I I don't even think that I went to Howard. I, I just I. I think I looked at myself like, you know, this is a trajectory for certain people and that's just not my trajectory. Um, and so I think you can hold yourself back because sometimes we lack the vision, right, hmm. to mm-hmm. see where you can be because of all these other things that we often put on ourselves. I have to say... So I've listened to the NPR Politics podcast from Jump. Yep. And so I remember the day like you were on there and, you know, it was like part of the Can't Let It Go. And I think you, the first one was like about Beyonce. And I was like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. She is. <laughs> that is. I am a fan. I love, yes. <laughs> Thank you for being here. <laughs> and the thing that it became very clear to me, I was like, oh, that's a black. That's a black woman. I, I am. And so I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious. You're in a. We are both in kind of like a very white, very male-dominated space in journalism in general. But on the NPR radio side, yeah. podcasting side, it's even more of that. So I'm curious how you have kept, like, what I hear from what I hear from people when they talk about you. It's about, um, oh, she just sounds so real. She just sounds like herself. Like you, mm-hmm. I've met you in person. You talk the exact same way you talk <laughs> when you get on the radio, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. so I'm, cu- I'm curious if, because it's happened to me, has anyone ever said, 
your voice is too blank. I was told my voice was too black. Like, were you have what? What's that experience been like for you? So I think that I almost probably benefited a bit from and and you know I, I love NPR. NPR has been great. I was not a big NPR listener before I got hired at NPR, <laughs> but I think I maybe benefited from not coming in with any preconceived notion of what I needed to sound like. When I started talking, people very quickly, not at NPR, Mm -hmm. but on Twitter and on social media, very quickly were like, oh, you sound different. (laughs) And I... In a good way or bad, were they giving you a compliment or no? A lot of people, and I will say most people were giving me a compliment and Mm -hmm. saying, you sound like someone I know, especially from other black people. Mm. It would be like, you sound like my very smart cousin. You sound like (laughs) my good girlfriend. You sound like, you know, Mm. you sound like my family. You sound like me is what they were saying. But there was, and there has been, you know, pushback from more people who are like, for some people, who are more trolls, who are like, this doesn't, you know, why are you talking like that? You know, there was this whole thing where someone said I wasn't being professional. I needed to be taken off the podcast because I think I I said a, I said some, some word that he felt like his self, I think I said his self. And oh. they were very like worked up about it, and they said I should be pulled off. And and there there's definitely Jesus. this idea that I was somehow being lazy, like I wasn't putting in the work. Like you're not even trying, you're not even trying to mm. be sound smart, you're not trying to work hard. You know, you're just talking this Jesus. way. Yeah. And then sometimes I felt like people kind of worked out their own anxieties on me. Some people sent like, you know, I, I got emails from people who were like, you know, at first I thought you weren't professional, but then I had to check my own privilege and like all these yeah. things. <laughs> like, you know, like these things right, these, right. that they were going through internally, listening <laughs> to my voice and yeah, they were going through all these things. And, you know, but one person did. And I don't think this person was American, so I will give them maybe some. But one person tweeted, and I, I thought this was so funny. He said he thought I sounded like a rapper. <laughs> <laughs> when I first heard you, I thought you sounded like a rapper. Um, <laughs> the voice thing, whether it's about being too black or... Um, w- women get a lot of, you know, they have vocal yes, fry or yeah. whatever. And I think in the old days, radio bosses used to make women smoke cigarettes to make their voice more gravelly, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. just like insane. They're like, get lung cancer so that you <laughs> yeah. can sound better, I guess. Yeah. Um, but what it does, the being yourself and saying things the way you say them, it kind of challenges the idea of what authority sounds yes. like, right? Yes. Because as reporters, as broadcasters, you're supposed to have authority. Mm-hmm. And like, Talk to me a little bit about that, about the idea of it changing what authority is to people, what it sounds like. That's such, I mean, that is what I have. Like I said, I didn't come into it with any preconceived notion. So I can't say I came into this like going, I'm going to challenge this or that. (laughs) I did not. I just came in and I was myself. Um, Mm -hmm. But... I realized as people got more, as I saw people kind of get worked up about it and the way people would talk about it and challenge my intellect and challenge Hmm. my, like I said, challenge my professionalism. I realized that for me, this is not about, you know, just the, the way I, 
you know, the way I say can't, or this is about <laughs> you expect people to sound a certain way to take them seriously. Mm. And so yeah. I look at it like, so that means you don't take my mother seriously. You wouldn't mm. have taken my grandmother seriously. You wouldn't have yeah. taken, you know, all these people in my family who work hard and are smart and do all these things and you think they're not worth listening to. And that I reject. Mm -hmm. If I had a certain, you know, just like in the U.S., if you have a British accent, they don't go, get rid of your accent, da 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 No, they say, oh, you sound <laughs> <Right>. so smart. <laughs> right, 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 Because that's right, a U.S. Right. thing. It's like... Team it's crumpets, so, so smart. Yeah, so it's not that you, it's not that you don't like an accent. You uh, just mm -hmm. associate a Southern accent or a Black accent or someone who sounds Black with not being professional. And that's the problem. Mm -hmm. That's that's your problem. Yeah. That's not true. Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with professionalism or smart or intellect or anything like that. Yeah. I don't know, it's just kind of insane to me in the year of our Lord Beyonce 2021 that people are still dealing with this, still dealing with this idea that power and someone in the media looks a certain way, speaks a certain way, when that's not how the world is set up at all. And I think journalists and journalism are better when the people that are in the rooms where the power is changing hands and, and, and making decisions looks like, sounds like, thinks like, talks like people all over the country. And that brings us back to Alice Dunnigan. Remember her, the first Black woman in the briefing room? Well, her career in journalism was pretty short-lived. In 1961, she joined the Kennedy administration, and in 1974, she self-published her autobiography that was largely forgotten until Carol Booker published a new edition. Alice died in 1983. In 2018, the museum in Washington, D.C. erected a statue of her. That museum has closed, but a state senator in Kentucky is pushing for the statue to get a permanent home in the U.S. Capitol with a replica in Kentucky's state capitol. Kara Booker has been following these developments pretty closely. Alice belongs there, and to do that, you have to first have your statue in your own state capitol. So that will be the first step, to get her statue in the Kentucky state capitol. And then there's a committee that decides what statues go in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. It makes Alice's story very, very timely. All right, that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Andy Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you're listening. Thanks for listening. Take care now. Bye-bye. <laughs>